Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. I just want to thank all of you that are listening to the program today live and also those of you that listen and download our show. In the last 30 days, we've had over 7,700 downloads of the various programs that we air here live on octalkradio.net. We're averaging about 19,000 visitors to our site over the past 30 days as well. And that's about 637 people every day go to our podcasting sites, either through Apple iTunes, Stitcher, or one of the other podcasting services that we use. And we continue to grow our reach and expand our audience. And we thank you for spending time with us each and every week here on Critical Mass Radio Show. All right, let's turn our attention to our second guest, Dan Lubeck, who is CEO of Solus Capital Partners. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on the program. Let's talk about your professional background a little bit. Tell us about your history and sort of your background, Dan. My background, going back to my start, is I was a attorney at Paul Hastings and Manat Phelps. I then started a law firm in Orange County, and a year after that I met my first partner in leverage buyout, and uh, we founded a firm called Unique Investment Corporation, and that was over 20 years ago. I, uh, unique, we had a great run together and then took about a year and a quarter off and, uh, started Solus Capital Partners, which has now been around for over a decade. Solus is a lower middle market focused private equity fund. We're based in Southern California and our investments are typically Western United States with a focus on California. And, uh, that's what we do. Could you help give me a sense, and maybe our audience, for defining the term lower middle market? That's a great question. Uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but in general, it's companies at the small end of the market. For us, that means companies typically of 15 to $70 million in revenue. Uh, so it's generally divided, divided by size. It can also be by EBITDA, uh, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is a measure that, that financial and strategic buyers use most of the time. And lower middle market in that case is usually one to five or six million in EBITDA. And do you look at any certain sectors, industries? How do you make those decisions, Dan? We, uh, we are industry agnostic. For us, it's not as important what the company does. It's, for us, it's much more important who is leading the company and what their vision is and whether we're helping them resolve a problem and otherwise helping them achieve their strategic plan and vision by making the investment. Um, there are firms that, that do specialize in different industry silos, uh, typically, those are firms that invest in bigger companies. What we've found, uh, and we really, this is a, a core to the way we invest, is that leadership is the most important decision we make. And so what we've found in the lower middle market is if we spend our time finding and learning more about great leaders of companies with a lot of potential, that at the end of the day, um, that's that's our way of investing, and, and it's been a very successful way for us to invest for now over 20 years for me. That's interesting because I work with CEOs and business owners here in Southern California as well, and I um, 
I believe that the leader has a disproportionate and the leadership team has a disproportionate influence on the performance of the company. And certainly in the size range that you're talking about, that is really critical, the type of people that are running the company and can they scale it and grow it. So I'm glad to hear you say that, that you're investing in the leaders. So it's very yeah, powerful no, you, thought. Dan. You philosophically would fit right on our team. And it's, and you know, it's even more about skill set as well, you know, to, uh, a company will evolve with a leader, and often we view all of the investing we do really as partnering, uh, irrespective of how much of a company we're actually acquiring in the transaction. Uh, we will actually even do 50-50 transactions with entrepreneur and, and family business owners, which is fairly unusual. But when we look at leaders, we not only look at their skills, which obviously are very important, but we look at do they do they – are they introspective? Do they recognize where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are? Um, are they looking for help in evolving and growing their company and growing their management team? And so those are the type of leaders that we typically look to partner with and, and quite frankly, the type of leaders that we've had great success with in the past. Uh, those are the type of leaders that I believe you can work with very effectively as well because they're open to suggestion and ideas and improving. And and I applaud you for helping those people, Dan. Thank you. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of different ways to invest, and for us, investing is not simply about putting money in a company. Investing is, as you and I have talked about and, and clearly are of like minds about, it's finding great leaders and great leadership teams and then supporting them in any way we can. You know, we have the benefit of having a tremendous resources that we can bring to the table to assist our leadership teams uh, and and do so in every investment. Uh, you know, each investment has its own nuances, but it's a lot of fun and, and very interesting and very exciting to, to help great entrepreneurs and great uh, uh, family business owners really realize the vision and, and realize the potential of their businesses. Dan, I'd like to change our focus a little bit because I remember back to an issue of Smart Business Magazine, which is a publication that supports the radio program, so in the spirit of full disclosure. But I came across an article that you authored on how business owners can value or determine their firm's value. And so I wanted to ask you if you could just maybe hit the highlights or share a little bit about your philosophy and what you wrote about in that article that was in Smart Business Magazine. Okay, sure. Well, at the end of the day, the majority of, of investors or buyers of a company are looking at the company's cash flow. So the most common metric that you hear talked about is the one that I mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So the, there's a, a few general axioms that that I'm going to share with you that they're not absolutes, but they're definitely uh, more often true than not. One is the higher the EBITDA, the higher the multiple. So companies, there's some real clear breakpoints. If up to five million, you know, let's say that the typical EBITDA, a multiple of EBITDA range for a value, which means that a buyer will value a company at you know, blank times their trailing 12 months EBITDA. So for a company of, let's say, up to 5 million EBITDA, 
the, the, the typical multiple range for that company will be four to six and a half times. Now, this is a generalization. As you get higher EBITDA, over 10, then that range will go up by one or one and a half uh, times at both ends of the range. Now, there's other things that impact the range that are very important. One is the certainty of cash flow, because really an investor is investing in future income, not past income. So the more certain it is that the future income will be the same or grow, then the higher the EBITDA valuation, the multiple valuation, a company will be rewarded. Uh, another another metric that is a little less um, at, it's a little less precise, but it's certainly important is just the general quality of the company. When we go to visit a company, you know, does, is there is there really a management team, or is it uh, a, still a very uh, hub and spoke type system where you where the entrepreneur or the leader is touching everything? Uh, is it clean? Is it organized? Is there good communication? Are the people happy to to go to work at the company? Are there piles of stuff uh, out in the corners of the warehouse? Is there good reporting uh, and information that we can look at when we sit down with the stakeholders? So all of these things factor into, you know, what the actual multiple of EBITDA that will award a company or value a company at. And, and there's some art and there's some science. At the end of the day, though, as I also wrote in my article, a company is worth what what a buyer is willing to pay. What have you seen through the uh, economic recession that we've just been through relative to multiples on EBITDA, companies' performance, and the impact of the economy on their EBITDA? Can you just give us a sense for what you've seen through this recession? Sure. You know, it's been a very interesting and, a, and a unusual recession and post-recessionary period. Um, you know, first, I think it's important to recognize that typically building up to recessions is you have some sort of boom period, and, you know, up to 2008 was no exception. And in our industry, in the private equity industry, that boom means that there is lots of leverage available, and a lot of private equity investors will utilize that leverage to pay higher and higher valuations for their companies. Um, we, we don't subscribe to that practice, and if we have time, we can talk more about that. But in general, then, you can accept that if there's an abundance of debt, then valuations for any kind of assets, companies, real estate, will be higher than if the debt is very scarce. So come 2008, um, debt disappeared. And so for a little while, uh, there was no activity, certainly pricing for everything adjusted accordingly. But for, for leverage buyouts and for real estate for that matter, because we really have a lot of contact in, in both disciplines, uh, what we saw was good assets really were receiving the same sort of valuations Fairly quickly after uh, you know the the um, 2008 uh, collapse, even though we were in a recessionary period, um, the reason why that's anomalous is typically there, it's a much longer period to recover. In this case, our belief is is that there's still so much capital 
not only in private equity firms, but on the balance sheets of corporations that that good assets, uh, particularly assets that were doing well in spite of the difficulties in the economy, were fetching the same sort of valuations that they were pre-recession. Uh, in addition, debt, which usually very slowly comes back into the market, and still, by the way, has been slow to come back into the market for the lower middle market, was very quickly aggressively chasing bigger transactions, you know, let's say at least 10 million EBITDA, but certainly 20 million EBITDA companies and bigger, to the same level of aggressiveness that they were chasing in pre-2008. So in general today, uh, I'd say valuations overall maybe are slightly lower than they were in 2008. Good companies that have been able to grow through the period are getting rewarded with the same valuations. Companies that have struggled, um, I would say, are not getting the same valuations or interest that they were in 2008, which was a much more frenzied time period. Yes, it was. It seems so long ago, doesn't it? But It sure yeah. does. <laughs> Let me ask you about the role private equity plays in helping smaller firms unlock their true potential and value. Can you share from your perspective the role your firm and firms like yours play? Yeah, thank you. That's a terrific question. Uh, I think private equity, and partially because it has earned it, is not well regarded in the marketplace. Uh, A lot of people have heard about the type of transactions where private equity firms come in and they invest equity and then they do a leverage recap and dividend out all their equity and then, you know, displaced workers and bankrupt companies. And I won't say that those deals haven't happened because they have, and unfortunately those are the ones that often get a lot of press and attention. But the market we're in, and I'm going to say absolutely the other good lower middle market practitioners are really very additive and can be tremendous uh, supporters in creating value and growing these enterprises. Um, In the lower middle market, we don't generate returns through financial engineering. Okay, We don't generate returns through uh, putting a lot of leverage. And I'm going to speak to us, and I'm going to speak when I make this answer to other firms that are disciplined um, investors like us. We generate returns by partnering with our management teams and helping them grow and improve those companies. And one of the reasons we really love what we do and that we have so much passion around the lower middle market is we can do that almost irrespective of business cycles. The sizes of these companies and their nimbleness and their ability to compete enable them to grow and gain market share and or do attractive add-on acquisitions when other companies might be, uh, might be you know, more um, uh, vulnerable to, to those sort of things. Uh, we help those companies do that in tough times. We help them do it in great times, too. So a good private equity firm will be a great partner to management in helping realize potential and growth in a company. That's excellent. Uh, I wonder if you can share a little bit more about what you look for specifically when making a decision to invest in a business. Well, yes. Um, We have four things that we have to have in an investment. 
One is a fair valuation, so we ultimately have to agree to a valuation that both sides are comfortable with. Two, uh, leadership that we can bet on, uh, so which we've spent a lot of time talking about today. But for us, this is an absolute. Uh, a lot of mistakes that, that financial uh, buyers and strategic buyers, for that matter, make is they come in and they replace uh, the existing team and, you know, end up having tremendous trouble and eroding the value of the company, and we just won't do that. Three, there's got to be significant growth and improvement potential. And four, there's got to be a dynamic that is driving the transaction that makes sense. Uh, and it can be a number of things. It could be that they need more working capital. It could be that the owners want to partially diversify their, their assets and that they typically have the majority of their wealth still tied up in their companies. It may be that there's some partners that aren't getting along and, and you know, one wants to be uh, bought out, you know, et cetera. So there's got to be a dynamic that drives the, that's driving the transaction that, that makes sense and that we're comfortable with. So those four criteria we have to have an investment. And then beyond that, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a long list of other things we'd like to see. It's nice to have um, companies that are dominant in their niche that actually have businesses and niches that are, that are more protected and, and more resilient to business cycles. Uh, we, we typically like uh, business service, outsource services, software, niche manufacturing, um, things that you can scale without big CapEx. So there's a long list of things, of attributes that we like, um, but none of which we have to have except for those first four. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Hopefully some in our audience, either listening live or in the future as a podcast, go, hey, wait a minute, I've got some of those elements, and we're gonna, I'm going to ask you for how people can find your firm online a little bit later in the interview. But before we get there, I wonder if I can turn you in the direction of kind of introspection. Can you think of a time when you learned a valuable lesson that you carry with you today in business and it came from what at the time might have felt like a difficult or even a painful experience, Dan? Ah, uh, geez. I don't know that you have time for uh, me to answer this with all of the ones that come to my mind. Well, I'll, I'll share a couple. Uh, one has to go with changing leadership um, and changing key people in a company. It's always very difficult. And one thing that we've found, the hardest changes to make in personnel are ones where they're still hardworking, loyal, good people, where the company has really outgrown their skill set or capability. Um, what we found is hard as those changes to make that not making them is very detrimental to a company. So no one likes to make uh, changes in personnel, but, but what we've found, if you make those changes and you treat the people fairly, that at the end of the day, you know, everyone appreciates it, even the person that, that's being changed, and, uh, and the company does better. Uh, you know, if you take a bigger picture, and, and this may or may not make sense, but we think the right way to run a company always is if you're going to sell it in five years. So if you look at any kind of decision, capital investment, personnel, et cetera, and use that as one of your arbitrating criteria, we think that will help make good decisions. So that's one, uh, one little pearl of wisdom. Another one, and this is one that, uh, to answer an earlier question, 
is one of the ways that we almost always add value is when we make an investment in a company and partner with a management team, we always put them through a strategic planning process. And very few companies in the lower middle market really do a strategic plan. Most of them do a budget. So most of them take the time to to do some guesses to what they're going to do in the coming year. But very few actually take the time and go through the exercise of doing a strategic plan, which is includes a budget. You know, what are we going to do in the next year? But more importantly is what do we want to look like in five years? And it's a much different exercise. We feel it's a very powerful exercise, and we feel that doing that really is one of the keys to unlocking the potential of the company. That is a good discipline to bring to any business, and I echo what you say about many of them not having that level of planning that could really serve them well. Yeah, it's, it's not easy to do. It takes time. You have to take, you know, uh, time of your senior team and generally move them off-site. But if, if for us a good plan, and, and we are always much more substance over form, mm-hmm. um, we don't care if it's a plan written on two pages and bullet points or if it's a, a, you know, a long you know, document that's very detailed. What we care about is at the end of that process, two things. One, that we can take everyone involved in the plan and ideally everyone in the company and put them in soundproof rooms and ask them, hey, what do you want your company to look like in five years? And they'll all give you the same answer. Right. And two, that there's quarterly clear goals and the people that are supposed to achieve them so that on a quarter-by-quarter basis we can sit down and say, did we do what we set out to do? And if not, why not? Very good disciplined approach. That's exciting. I wish I had more time with you, Dan, because I'd like to investigate that even more with you. Maybe I can have you back on a future episode of the radio program. Uh, It'd be my pleasure. I really appreciate the conversation. It's fun to speak with someone that I think is like-minded in how we approach these things. So tell me about the future. Now that you you echoed my belief a little bit that the the worst of the recession is behind it, I mean, it's kind of patchy, and, you know, it's different industries, different segments are seeing different recoveries or levels of recovery, but where do you see for Solus Capital Partners, Dan? What's the future look like? Where are the opportunities for growth? We are very excited about the future. Uh, One, we uh, just raised our first committed fund, which was a nice accomplishment for us, and and a nice recognition of us as investors. There's not a lot of folks raising first-time committed funds in this market, so um, that'll be. We're actually done with that at the end of this month, so we're excited to have that behind us. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, we really like this economy uh, for the lower middle market. It's a it's a slow kind of grinding recovery. It's real. It's not based on inappropriate leverage. And for the type of companies we invest in and for the type of investing that we do, this is really an ideal scenario. Um, What's great is that there's a lot of lower middle market companies, particularly in the western U.S. and particularly in California, um, that have done a nice job of weathering the storm, that are coming back to or exceeding where they were uh, before the recession hit. 
um, that recognize that now might be a good time to at least diversify some of their assets and bring on a good partner or sell their companies. Um, and and we're excited about it. We're seeing a lot more uh, baby boomer business owners really getting serious about doing something with their companies at this time. We're seeing a lot of younger business owners recognizing that they can reach their goals faster if they have a good partner. So we and we like all those scenarios. So we're excited about the future. The lower middle market is is the place we've always been. It's it's where we're always going to be. Uh, but this particular stretch ahead of us, maybe the next seven to ten years, looks like it should be terrific, both as an investor and as a company owner. That's interesting you say that because I believe a slow and steady climb out of this recession is exactly what the economy needs as well. And it's the kind of thing that we won't realize it until we have the benefit of hindsight to look back on some number of years and go, well, we've come a long way, but it you know, it's taken us time. But I do agree with you completely. That is the exact tonic that this economy needs, and, and I hope it continues that way. Yeah, we uh, we always do a uh, a uh, unique holiday card every year, and this year our theme was "Slow and Steady Wins the Race." That's true. <laughs> if someone wanted to learn more about your firm, how do they find Solus Capital Partners online, Dan? They go to solacecapital.com. dot uh, com. How can do they spell Solus? S O L I S. Excellent. C-A-P-I-T-A-L, and uh, reach out to any one of us, uh, myself, Craig, Duper, Josh Harmson. We're always available. We always like to talk about companies. Uh, we give our time away uh, every day to business owners and the professionals that service business owners really with very little expectation of finding an investment. We're hopeful that we will, but more to just continue to help people along the path of, uh, of helping their companies realize their potential and ultimately accomplishing their personal objectives relative to those companies. And even if your company isn't one that, even if it, they feel is ready for real realization, we always are happy to, to at least tell them about the process, tell them what they can be doing to maximize their success and, and assisting any way we can. I want to thank you for the time that you've given us here on the radio program today, Dan Lubeck. I want to welcome you to the Critical Mass community, and thanks for being a friend of the radio show. Well, thanks for uh, for giving me a chance to share our thoughts on this. It was a pleasure, and uh, we wish you guys the best, and uh, look forward to hearing your show in the future. And, and if you need us, we're around. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, those were our two guests today here on Critical Mass Radio Show. Our engineer for today's show was Paul Roberts. Our guest coordinator was Kathleen Shepard. Rachel Franzi is our producer, and Kelly Faltis is our marketing communications manager. Until the next time we have a chance to talk, I am Rick Franzi, your host of the Critical Mass Radio Show, saying I hope that all of your decisions move your business in a positive direction. You've been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show right here on OCTalkRadio.net.